Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of, not preaching, not a house of worship, a house of prayer. They used to say, if you want to know how popular the pastor is, why don't you come to church on a Sunday morning? If you want to know how popular the preaching is, come to church on a Sunday evening. But if you want to know how popular Jesus is, come to the prayer meeting on Tuesday night. And that's the reality. When we talk about how popular prayer is, communion with Jesus, it's something that's learned behavior. It's something that's very difficult. It's not our natural reaction. And, um, you know, as we've been spending the last few weeks talking about prayer, I was just reminded again as Pastor Chad was exhorting us. I remember several years ago when I was praying through the Lord's Prayer. And, of course, you know the Lord's Prayer is to give us this day our daily bread. And I never forget the Lord spoke to me. And he said, Craig, whenever your love life with Jesus becomes predictable, he said, your daily bread has mold on it. I never forget that. When our love life with Jesus becomes predictable, when we lose the sense of awe, the sense of wonder of His goodness and grace to us, our daily bread has mold on it. I don't know anybody wants to eat moldy bread. Come on, somebody. We want to eat fresh bread. In fact, this is the dependency that God built in the Old Testament with the manna literally was unable to be stored. You couldn't store the manna to the next day because God alone wants us coming to Him in daily dependence. See, the goal of parenting even is that we would raise our children to be independently dependent upon God. That's really the goal, is that we don't raise our children just to be independent like our culture of independence says, which by the way, you can see how a culture of individualism breaks down when tragedy strikes. No matter how individualistic we think we are when Houston strikes, when a a hurricane touches Florida, it doesn't matter. All the racial tension that's been going that media tries to perpetuate has died over the last few weeks. It's because we are our brother's keeper. Can I get an amen? This has nothing to do with my message today, but I feel stirred, so I'm just going to follow it just a minute, all right? This is what it means to love our neighbor. This is what it means to be in daily awe and surrender of who Jesus Christ is. And I, um, I love prayer. I love the scripture, but I love prayer. You know, prayer is the most undervalued resource of the church. The most undervalued resource. The Bible teaches us, as we started two weeks ago, I preached on Jacob and Pastor Chad preached a message last week called Mind the Gap. I, I, we reminding ourselves that the Bible teaches us that all the blessings that God wants to bestow on us... He does so through prayer. Another way we can say this is prayer is the conduit by which His power comes into our lives. Prayer is the conduit by which His his power comes into our our families, our issues, our situations. John Wesley, one of my great uh, mentors through his teaching, uh, he was the pioneer of one of the great awakenings in our country. He once said, he said, God does nothing on earth except an answer to prayer. God does nothing on earth except an answer to prayer. Now, that's clearly an overstatement. But what he's getting at is he's getting at the fact that the means by which God releases his power on earth is only through prayer. Everybody say prayer. 
Prayer is the way we lay hold of the promises and the blessings of God. Jacob was promised at his birth the blessing, but he had to wrestle all night with God in Genesis 32 until what was already decreed or promised became his in actuality. Prayer is the way we lay hold of the blessings of God. Prayer is the way we make the promises of God our own. The Bible, I told you two weeks ago, is a book of promises. If you read this book, there are about 3,000 of them, a little over 3,000 promises. I told you it's good to read through the Bible. I want every person in this church to read through the Bible, to have a Bible reading plan. And you say, well, some of those are only for the Old Testament saints. Yeah, but the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. He said, all of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus for me. They are yes and amen for my life as well. I want you to read through the Bible, but I want you more importantly to pray through the Bible. This is your prayer book. This is our means of prayer. Prayer works like a laser, you scientists in the room. The way a laser works is you stack light beams on top of each other until, as you do, you get heavier and heavier light beams until they intensify. That's what a laser is. And when waves go in opposite directions, they cancel each other out. Noise-canceling headphones from Dr. Dre, have, uh, they have beams that are going to your ear, so that are away from your ear, so that what's coming from the plane around you is actually being canceled out. That's what, that's what waves are doing. It's, it's like noise-canceling headphones. And so when these waves go in the same direction, when the light Uh, light goes in the same direction, they begin to increase in strength. Let me tell you what prayer is. Prayer is you and I adding the wave of our faith on top of the wave of God's promises and His express will, and the result is the laser of God's power over a situation. It begins to intensify over whatever it is that we are pinpointing in prayer. That's what prayer is. I asked you two weeks ago, where is the power and the blessing of God absent from your life? Where is the blessing of God absent from your family? Simply because you have not risen up to claim the blessings of God and the promises of God as your own. We looked at Jacob, a man who laid hold of the promise and blessing of God. He wrestled with God all night long. God had already declared the blessing to be his, but he wasn't trying to manipulate God into giving him something God hadn't come up with on his own. It was was something that God had declared for him, but Jacob took it through a night of wrestling. He pressed through, and he won his blessing. Today, we're going to look at another guy whose life was very similar. Everybody say Daniel. Daniel's one of the most famous Bible heroes of all time. If you, last year, year before, I guess it was year before, did anybody watch the History Channel Bible series? Did anybody watch that? You watched that on Sunday nights? I know some of you, I know some of you were, um, you're pagan, pagans, and you're watching the Oscars most of those nights, but we, we, we Christians, and no, I'm just totally kidding, we, we Christians are watching the Bible series on on History Channel, but uh, if you look at this this story of Daniel, I, I began this week to begin to have to fight the grand the Grand Slam sermon syndrome. You know what the Grand Slam sermon syndrome is? That's you get up and you preach for the ovation and applause of people rather than the obedience to what Jesus is asking you to preach. And uh, this is one of those weeks where I didn't want to preach what I'm going to preach. That's not what I wanted to in my personal desire. I wanted to focus in on one passage, but I couldn't because when you look at the grand scope of Daniel's life, it's impossible to look at just one instance when he's thrown into a den of lines and extrapolate from that passage all of the principles of prayer we learn from his life. So what I want to do is I want to give you a grand scope of Daniel's life, and I want to show you three things about his prayer. Number one, I want to show you Daniel's discipline of prayer. Daniel's discipline of prayer. Number two, I want to show you Daniel's defiance through prayer. 
And number three, Daniel's endurance in prayer. How do you like that for a little alliteration? A little alliteration makes the lesson linger longer, right? Daniel's, Daniel's prayer. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Before we go there, though, before we read the text, let me give you some context so you know what's going on. Daniel was an Israelite captive. He had been carried off into Babylon in Babylonian captivity when the southern kingdom Judah was overtaken in about uh, 668 uh, B.C. God had told Israel if they're unfaithful to him, he would send them out of the promised land of Israel into exile. They would go into exile and they would be, they would be exiled. Well, after repeated warnings, Israel would not return from her unfaithfulness. This happened year after year after year. So God kept his word to them, which God always does. And uh, I'm not 100 years past, in 586 B.C., uh, the king of Babylon, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, and the armies of Babylon, they ride into Jerusalem, they kill thousands of people, and they bring in big cages. They get the, the children, particularly in the teenagers, and they put them in cages, unlike the Assyrians that put rings in their noses and attached them to chains and drug them into Assyrian captivity. They put them in cages. Now all the Israelites are in cages and are being taken as captives and slaves. As I mentioned, Daniel was likely in his middle school years at this time, his junior high years, which means Daniel probably saw his parents murdered in front of him, and then he was put into a cage and he was carted off into Babylon. Now, after he got there, the king was a very wise man. He said, we want to start an internship, but I don't want a couple interns. I want hundreds, if not thousands of interns. So we're going to start an internship. Daniel was one of the Hebrew boys that was selected to be a part of a program where some of the best and the brightest of all the young men in Babylon got to train as interns in the palace. Now, they included some of the Israelite captives so that they could brainwash them into Babylonian ways, and then they wanted to use the Jews whom God had his favor on to be trained and brainwashed in the way of Babylonia so that they could then lead Babylonia. They could lead their people. That's why more Nobel Peace Prizes have come from the nation of Israel than any other nation on the planet because God's blessing is on Israel. Another sermon for another day. Well, through a series of events, God blessed Daniel, and Daniel distinguished himself, the Bible says, from all of his peers. Now, let me show you a couple ways he distinguished himself. First of all, the king had commanded all of the guys in the internship to eat the best Babylonian diet. He gave them the best amount of food so that they could have the healthiest and smartest individuals. But the problem is with the Babylonian diet, it included many foods that were forbidden by the law of God for Jews to eat. So Daniel determined in his heart, Daniel 1 and 8, he determined not to defile himself. He said, I will not eat the king's choice wine or drink the king's choice wine or eat his foods. We get the Daniel fast from it. I won't eat the king's meats. But his supervisor said, you have to. This is the diet, diet we've determined by our doctors that's going to make you the healthiest and the smartest. And you either eat it or you don't. And we execute you and we'll replace you with another Hebrew boy. Daniel gets a little idea as a bold teenager and he says, hey, uh, I, I'm not on that diet. I'm on the Jenny Craig diet. We only eat fruits and vegetables. Not the Christian, not, I'm just kidding. But we only eat fruits and vegetables, okay? And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If uh, you will allow me to eat what I want to eat, I want you to come in, bring your best doctors. Ten days later, you can test us. And, 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 and then after a couple weeks, if we've suffered from eating what we want to eat, then you can cause us to change. So the guy agrees, and when they examine them after 10 days, guess what happens? They are healthier, they are stronger, and they are smarter than any other person on a different diet. Now, there's another way that he is tested. Daniel 2 says that God gave Daniel an incredible amount of wisdom. 
Daniel was an amazing, intelligent man. He had great skill. He had skill in the maths. He had skill in the sciences. He set him at the top of his class and everything. He got the valedictorian. He aced every test. He was a renaissance man, if you will. Above and beyond that, God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. So that caught people's attention, you can imagine. Not only could Daniel tell you what was in the books he studied, he could tell you what was in your head the night before. Now, he was like a modern-day walking, archaic Google that's what Daniel was. He was like a Google bar. I mean, he could tell you the dream that you had last night. He could tell you the book that you studied three years ago. Daniel was an amazing young man. Finally, the Bible says God put an excellent spirit within him. I like that. We don't know exactly what that means, but we do know, I take to mean that God exuded favor and graciousness to this young man. You ever been around people like that? You know they do what they do and they live how they live and they operate the way they operate and you're like, dear God, I can't do it. I can't even stand a chance. That's called what? That's called a spirit of excellence being put on somebody. All right? And you know people, you've met people like this. So that's where we pick up in, in chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom, the whole kingdom, he said, satraps. Now satraps, what were satraps? Satraps were some kind of high-ranking Babylonian government official. It sounds like something you hunt with, but it's not. And over them, three high officials, verse 2, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account. So out of the top 120 people, they selected three. The 120 satraps, they get three of the best 120. And Daniel was one of them. How do you like that? Three people to be head of the whole internship, and one of them happened to be a Jew. Daniel the Jew is in the midst of great leadership. Verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Whoa, folks. A Jew who was just taken out of captivity or out of his own country is now being set number two in the whole kingdom by the very king. Well, you can imagine the Babylonians get a little bit jealous. And their parents that make a lot of money, they get really, really jealous. Have you ever dealt with that? Come on, high school sports, middle school sports, elementary school sports, right? Their parents who make a lot of money start running their mouth. And this is not a good thing. They're really, really jealous of this Daniel, who is a Jew. Verse 4, then the jealous high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground. Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. They go on tax turbo. They check his tax returns dead on. They go to his Twitter. He hadn't posted anything crazy in the last three years. They go to his Facebook. They hit every deal on this day. Hit the deal. Nothing shady in his post. They can't find anything wrong with him. He has no outstanding parking tickets from his local university. He has none whatsoever. He's completely blameless as far as it goes. They can find nothing on him. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. You know what they say? I find this verse very humorous. They say, you know what the problem with Daniel is? The problem with Daniel is this guy just obeys God too much. By the way, you're in pretty good company when all the culture around you has got to say about you is, man, he's just an obedient dude to Jesus. Man, I don't know what his deal is, but he just won't stop obeying. He's unflinching in his obedience. Verse 6, then the high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, O King Darius, live forever. This is outright flattery, by the way. You understand this, right? This is total flattery. They're coming to the king. Shameless flattery. Oh, your most exalted awesomeness. Horrible. 
Verse 7, all of us, the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors, all agreed, king, that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man these 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The den was their ultimate punishment in Babylonia. The ultimate punishment in Rome was crucifixion. This is the highest form of capital punishment. Verse 8, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, king, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. What's going on, Craig? The law of the Medes and the Persians was this code that once something had been signed into law, it could not be undone, even if the parties that signed it changed their mind. It was like a blood covenant. Think a pinky swear in elementary school. Think a sequester order. Something can't be undone. Verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. He fell to flattery. He fell to bad political advice. I love this next part. I love this next part. When? When, Daniel? Wasn't like Daniel, Daniel's, Daniel's really defined here. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, wait till you sign that document. Okay, you got it signed. No one can go pray. No one can pray except to the king. Okay, go ahead and sign. Oh, you got it? Okay. When he signed it, the Bible says he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem and he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God. Here's the comma. As he had done previously. He didn't change his game. What's going on, Craig? Daniel didn't get his marching orders from the king. Daniel didn't get his marching orders from the daily newspaper. Daniel didn't get his marching orders from the school administration's office. He didn't get his marching orders from what was popular now. He didn't get his marching orders from what other pastors were talking about and trying to convince other pastors need to talk about in that season. He didn't get his marching orders from what was popular or trending on Twitter. He didn't get his popular orders or marching orders by what was politically correct or anything else he got his marching orders from God which was by the way his key to success he goes on and gets on his knees let me tell you something you know the old great quote I don't know the key to success but I know the key to failure try to please everyone can I just go ahead and tell you when you try to please everyone you will fail but when you are concerned with pleasing only God in fact I want to go ahead and free somebody up you will not fulfill the will of God and keep people happy at the same time So you better make the choice early on. It just won't happen. It's one of the great first tests we run into in terms of obedience to Jesus. It will not make people happy. It will be sometimes the closest to you. But notice how he has this unflinching obedience to say, you know what? I'm going to please God. Listen, when you get to the place in your life where you say, I'm going to please God only, it happened. two things happen in your life. Number one, it makes decision making really simple. It makes decision making simple. God... I'm a, I got one person to please. It's you. Nobody else. Number two, God prospers you. God prospers you. He, he lived for an audience of one. That's why I tell you all the time, folks, you've got to get in that secret place because your private place with him is his personal audience with you. That's what he wants and desires for you. So here are three things. I extrapolate three things from Daniel's prayer life. Number one, I want to give them to us in the way that makes sense to us. Number one, our prayers should be characterized by discipline. Our prayers should be characterized by discipline. This story tells us that Daniel prayed three times a day. Everybody say three times. 
I'm going to make the case that this is actually one of the primary sources of Daniel's strength. It is. This is what gave Daniel the ability to stand and withstand the empire. This is what gave Daniel the ability to continue to stay strong even on a diet that wasn't the king's diet. This is what gave Daniel the ability to, to live and, st- and sleep soundly in the midst of a den of lions. Listen, he met with God as often as he ate. As often as he physically fed himself, he spiritually fed himself. He met with God three times a day. I want to tell you the most important discipline I have in my life is meeting with God every day. It is. It's something I learned. I didn't learn for about two years of my Christian journey when I was weak and and impotent and powerless. Had no ability to see my life transformed because I didn't know God's word. And when I began to create a a, a habit of creating an altar on a red pillow that was downstairs in my house in Saudi Daisy, Tennessee, and I remember many, many nights laying in bed at 12 o'clock at night, and I'm thinking, did I read my Bible today? That was hard to remember in a long day, but I could always remember, did I go to my altar today? And many times I got up out of those sheets when it was cold, and I walked down to that altar at 16, 17, 18 years old and get behind the couch, and my private time with God became his personal audience with me. I learned it from a early on. I think from the time I was a teenager until now, there's been very few days I've not had a time. It's just a part of my life where I come before the king, I come before the Lord, and I lay down. That's where you've got to allow his power and his strength to fill you. Listen, folks, for those of you who don't have a daily time with God, I really do not know how you do it. I have no idea how you have enough strength to make it in your marriage. I don't know how you make it without being divorced. I have no idea. I don't know how you make it to have wisdom to make wise decisions about your career. I don't know it. People who don't have a daily time with God, I don't know how in the world you raise your children in a godless society that's sex-drenched like we live in. I have no idea how you do it. But when we get alone before God and we say, God, I'm laying my life before you, I don't know how you and your marriage don't get snappy with one another if you don't. I can tell you in our marriage, every single time we get snappy with each other, it's one of us or both of us have not been spending time alone in the prayer closet. Every single time it's going to end in snappiness. And so when we lay before God, we get before God, Jesus did the same. He prayed all night long before choosing his disciples, before choosing 12 men who would lay the foundation of the church, I want to ask you a question today. How many big decisions have you gone into without seeking God's direction? How many big decisions have you gone into? Well, well, Jesus was just weak, Pastor Craig. He was weak and he needed that. I I I don't need that. Prayer is how God releases his wisdom and his power for change in you. And when we don't get along with him, we're cutting ourselves off from the very life of Almighty God. In fact, I was telling some of our team members last week in Joshua chapter 11, if you study the nation of Israel, it's pretty interesting. The places where Israel went wrong, every single time the nation of Israel went wrong, you know how they went wrong? They didn't pray, and they just made the obvious decision that was before them. And let me tell you, most of the time in the kingdom, the obvious decision is not the right decision. And if you don't pray and just make what is obvious, what seems apparent, and you don't pray, you effectively cut yourself off from the power of God that is resident and available to change your situation. Let me use an example on the other side. The night before Jesus died, Jesus took three of his closest disciples, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He went deep into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. Jesus is about to go through the greatest struggle he'd ever been through. He's about to go to the cross by 9 a.m. He needed three guys to pray with him. He left them on a rock, a place to pray, and he went on a little further in the garden to pray by himself. You know why he left them on the rock? He said, I want you guys to pray that you would not fall into what? 
temptation. Pray lest you fall into temptation. I read that again this week, and you may think this is not ground-shaking or earth-shattering, but it was earth-shattering to me, and I want you to follow. I don't know how many times I preached that, but again, this is God's living word, and it came alive to me. Think about this. He's walking in the garden, and he asked them, pray lest you fall into temptation. He comes back at least three times, and they're not praying. They're doing what? sleeping. When he woke them up, I'm sure they tried to pretend like they were praying, like, oh God, yes, bless the missionaries in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, like you, some of you do at 3 a.m. in all night prayer, like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, bless the Lord. Just touch them, Lord. I'm, I'm sure he tried to do that. I'm sure. But Jesus wasn't full because he's omniscient. And he said, could you not even pray and watch with me for one hour. So what did Peter do? He slept through that one hour. What would happen just a few hours later? Peter would deny Jesus three times. Here's the question. What if Peter would have stayed awake for that hour? Jesus told him to stay awake and pray that you would not enter temptation. I believe what Jesus is trying to say and what the writer, Matthew, is trying to tell us is that if Peter would have stayed awake, he'd have never denied his Savior. He'd have never fallen into temptation if he would have prayed. He wouldn't have had the greatest moment of weakness and deficiency and impotence of his career if he would have just stayed awake and prayed for one hour. Maybe he would not have crumbled that night and made the greatest mistake of his life. That seems like what Jesus is setting up. When Jesus found Peter sleeping, he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know, Peter, you don't want to deny me next to a slave girl in a few hours right out here outside of Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. But listen, your your flesh is so weak that it will deny me. I know you in your inner soul and your spirit doesn't want to deny me. Your spirit's willing to go with me to the grave, but your flesh is weak. What if prayer is God's only means of strengthening your spirit to avoid temptation? And some of you keep on giving in and surrendering to temptation and surrendering to habitual sin. And God's saying, I want to snap the power of the world over your life. But you got to be able to be persistent and disciplined in prayer. And when we're undisciplined in prayer, then what happens is you cut ourselves off from the power of God. You say, Craig, I'm too busy to pray. If you are too busy to pray, you are busier than God wants you to be. There's no ifs and buts about it. Something's got to go. Something has to change. I read this in a book recently. Many of you may have read the book with me, Mark Batterson's book called The Circle Maker. Mark Batterson, pastor's in Washington, D.C. read this in a book called The Circle Maker. He said, on July 16, 1969, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin propelled into space aboard Apollo 11. The rocket apparatus that they went into space with weighed 102,907 pounds. 102,000 pounds. Now, the fuel they carried was 5,625,000 pounds of fuel. So the apparatus was only 100,000 pounds, but the fuel was 5 million, 5.5 million pounds of fuel. At takeoff, the five engines produced seven million, 7.5 million pounds of thrust in order to reach the escape velocity that one is needed of 17,500 miles per hour required to break the gravitational pull of our world and get into orbit. Can I tell you, prayer is the only way we escape the gravitational pull of the flesh. You want the prayer and the thrust to get the 17,500 pounds off of your flesh and into the realm of sphere of God's usefulness and his glory, then you've got to understand for you to enter into God's orbit, you must pray. It's the way you 
overcome weaknesses of the flesh. It's the way you access the power of God. It's the prayer. So I'm not saying that prayer three times a day is the magic number. But what I'm saying is what if you bathed each day in prayer? What if you bathed each day in prayer? What if you prayed through your calendar each morning? Let me give you a practical tip that I've just started doing. I'll take my calendar that I have. My calendar is quite crazy at the season. I'll take my calendar and I'll start at the beginning of the morning and I'll pray through it. God, here's what's going to happen from 7 to 9 a.m. Here's what's going to happen at 10. Here's what's going to happen at 11. Here's what's going to happen at 3. Here's what's going to happen at 5. Here's what's going to happen at 9 p.m. And there's going to be a whole lot of things that happen in between that. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray through my calendar. I'm going to ask God that you would show me the way to go. Show me what to do. Empower me to do what you want me to do today. Strengthen me to do what you want me to do. Oh, by the way, can I make a challenge for you? You need to set a time to pray. Oh, I just pray through the day. No, you don't. Well, you have that great quote. I, I treat prayer like it's uh, breathing rather than fueling up at the gas station. No, you don't. That's a great quote, but it don't work. It doesn't. You've got to set a time to pray each day. I'm not talking about when you're cut off in traffic. Like, oh, Jesus, what's this guy doing? I'm talking about you setting a time. Getting alone before the Lord. And he who sees what is in secret rewards you openly. I'm trying to teach this to my kids, folks, in a way that's appropriate to them. But it's no longer than 10 minutes. But it's been awesome through this 28 days of prayer. And if you haven't jumped in 28 days of prayer, please jump in with us. Get your families together, Dad. And let everybody in the family pray over what our point is. We did it even last night as we got home late. But it's so awesome to watch your kids. I guarantee you at the end of the day, these kids, we can say, what happened in your day today? And then just let them pray. Well, I don't know what to pray. Well, just pray that God would give you strength to face tomorrow. So it's just, just teaching my kids at a young age that you've got to get before the Lord every day. You have to. Before I go on to my next point, let me share you the cool ending to my astronaut story because I'm OCD and I'm a scientist too, or at least want to be. On Sunday, July 20th, 1969, it was four days after they took off. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed their lunar module called the Eagle on the Sea of Tranquility on the surface of the moon. The first thing they did was celebrate communion. If you were alive on 1969 and you watched the deal, uh, because of a lawsuit filed by the ACLU when NASA aired the reading, then it didn't show this. But you know what Buzz Aldrin did? He was an elder in the Presbyterian Church. The first thing he did when he got on the moon is he took out bread and he took out wine because Earth or the moon is one-sixth of the gravitational pull of the Earth. It was very difficult, so the wine started coming up out of the cup. And he took the bread, which is, by the way, the coolest communion element that's ever happened. And he took up the cup, the chalice, and he took a picture with earth in the background and he's holding up the chalice on the moon and he took communion right there on the moon they read Genesis chapter 1 and then Buzz Aldrin takes a step onto the moon he opens his Bible and he reads John 15 and 5 and here's what Buzz Aldrin reads from the moon I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he is that it, it is that that bears much fruit he said it's his will for apart from me Jesus said you can can do nothing. Craig, why should I pray? Because apart from him, you can do nothing of spiritual lasting impact. I don't care what you build. I don't care how you pastor your family, how you lead people. If you don't pray, you can't build anything of eternal significance. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't build your life. You can't build your career. You can't build your family. You can't build anything apart from Jesus. That's why I told you to memorize this verse, Psalm 127.1. 
It's the prayer I pray over my family every day. Uh, Psalm 127.1, the, the arrows, the children are in the arrows like an arrows in a bow, a warrior, right? But the verse starts in verse 1. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord builds the family, unless the Lord builds the career, unless the Lord builds the ministry, unless the Lord builds the legacy, unless the Lord builds our church, those who labor, we labor in vain. When you come before God in prayer, you say, unless you build my children, God, my children are probably going to end up in hell. But you will build them. And I'm asking you to build them, God. Unless you build my career, God, I'm going to take wrong paths left and right. But, Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And God just convicted me this week and said, ask the people, how much have you labored in vain building a house that has no spiritual significance at all? Some of you have been working your tail off for 30 years. Some of you have been pulling and sweating. But if you aren't doing it in the Lord and allowing the Lord to do it, it has no eternal spiritual significance. And before before you go into a pity party, I'm telling you, it's not too late. Some of you've labored hard. Some of you sweated hard. Some of you tooled hard in your career. And God says it's not too late. You need to become a student of the word. You need to allow the word of God to fill your soul. Unless the Lord builds it, those who labor, labor in vain. Number two, our prayer should be characterized by defiance. Our prayer should be characterized by defiance. Defiance of what? Of Babylonians' laws to obey God, yes, but there's something more. Let me press you a minute. When Daniel prayed, he was defying a situation that he didn't want to be in and what he believed God wanted to change. Let me show you how he defies. The words of one of Daniel's prayers that he prayed three times a day is in Daniel 9. Read it with me. Daniel chapter 9. All connect groups, listen up really close because here I'm going to give you a challenge for tonight in your connect group. Daniel 9, 7, 17 through 19. This is one of the prayers that Daniel prayed three times a day. He says, now therefore, thank God we get an insight into how he prayed. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem. The temple, the sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed, utterly destroyed by Babylonians. He said it's desolate. He said, this is your name, God. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, oh, uh, ear, hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Come on, somebody. There's a model for prayer. We don't come to you because of our ability to stand before you, but because of your great mercy, O oh Lord. Hear, O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention. O oh Lord, act. O oh Lord, delay not. O oh Lord, for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city Woodstock and your people are called by your name. This, by the way, is a model prayer with so much in it to see. What do you see in that prayer? I see a couple of things. This would be a great connect group facilitation. Break down those three verses for 45 minutes and pull out everything you can see about prayer in those two verses. It's amazing. I see, first of all, a spirit of repentance and humility. Don't you? God is not going to hear you when you are defined against him. He has humility, approaches God. Right? And if you're a little bit prideful, just think of our Savior. His life began in a borrowed stable and it ended in a borrowed tomb. That would make you humble real quick. Son of man had nowhere to lay his head. He's the captain of our salvation. A spirit of repentance. A spirit of humility. Not only that, I see that his prayers are grounded in God's mercies, not his own righteousness. His great hope is in God's mercies. He says, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, 
I'm not coming before you because I'm worthy, God, but because of your great mercy. Can, and I tell you, God doesn't hear our prayers and hear prayers that are based on your great mercy and your idea of being worthy. No, he hears prayers that make their hope his great mercy. Come before God and say, Lord, out of your great mercy, not out of my righteous ability. But let me tell you, I see also the awesomeness of the, the promise of God, the awareness of the promises of God. This is what I see in this passage. What Daniel demands there, look at the, ta- the text. He said, oh Lord, pay attention and act. Oh Lord, your city. Did you know what he's doing? That is a near verbatim quote of a promise that God gave to Israel. It's almost verbatim of what God gave to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that if Israel went into exile, when they repented, God would restore them to Israel. See what Daniel's doing? Remember two weeks ago? He's holding up God's words to God. He's trying to catch Christ in his words. He's throwing up the words of God in the face of God and saying, God, it's because of your great name. God, you promised. Your name is on the line. Let us live in captivity if that's what you want. If you want your name to be defiled, God, in the middle of a city, do it. Oh, I love that boldness, Daniel. If that's what you want, God, you want your name to be defamed, you want to see your people that you died to set free, you want to see your people that you liberated from Egyptian bondage, you want to see them in cages, living in the land that you promised, not not the land that you promised us, then then don't act. If you want your name to be high, then you better act, God. If you want your name to be revered, we, 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 we lack defiance this way in prayer. Can we just all agree that we do? We, we lack this kind of defiance. We, we lack this kind of defiance defiance in prayer major defiance notice this write this down effective prayer begins when you perceive the gap between us where a situation is and where God wants it to be just to piggyback on last week's message mind the gap effective prayer begins when you perceive the gap between where a situation is and where God wants it to be Jesus taught us to pray he said your kingdom come your will be done on Earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? We see a gap between his will and his kingdom in heaven and a gap between his kingdom and will and our situation on earth and we pray it into existence. We add the wave of our faith to the wave of his revealed will in heaven and therefore release the laser of his power from heaven into the situation I see until the situation I see comes into alignment with what his revealed will is in heaven. That is the power of prayer. That is defiance in prayer. Now you say, Craig, that has to be done in humility. Yes, it does, because we don't always know the will of God. Did you know I don't always know the will of God in a situation? I'm not some Jedi mind knowing the will of God. I I don't know the will of God, but here's what I do know. A lot of the will of God we do know through his word. So here's my question. How much of the word of God do you know? How much of the word of God do you know? You ready to write this down? The strengths of our prayers to God are entirely dependent on our knowledge of the word of God. I'm gonna say it again. The, the, the strengths of our prayers to God are entirely dependent on our knowledge of the word of God. This is your prayer book. Your ability to lay hold of the promises of God is entirely dependent on your knowledge of those promises. You gotta have knowledge and understanding of the promises of God. Write this down. I'm gonna give it to you another way. 
way. Prayers that start in heaven are heard by heaven. If you want the help of heaven, you must listen to the words from heaven. If you want the help of heaven, you must listen to the words that come from heaven. Prayers that start in heaven are answered by heaven. Prayers that are effective begin and they end with the promises of God. Craig, I want my prayers answered. To have your prayers answered, you must pray according to the will of God and they begin with the promises of God. If you listen to the prayers of your mentors, it seems like every time they pray, they get something answered. Anybody ever been around somebody like that? You listen to the prayers of people who get their prayers answered, it sounds like they're just quoting scripture the whole time. It's not like a walking scripture. I mean like a walking encyclopedia of the Bible and they weave their words into the word of God and they hold God who said he's captive to his word, who put his word above his very name and they're defiant and say, God, I will pray, I will persist and I will declare your truth until the situation I see comes into alignment with your revealed will from heaven. Man, I hope your spirit's getting stirred this morning. You can't know God's will any more than you know his word. So if you want to pray well, you've got to know the word well. You've got to engage the word well. Your prayers won't be any stronger than your knowledge of the word of God. You've got to engage the Bible. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to ground your prayers there. I think this is the reason why our prayers are so weak, folks. In a biblically illiterate generation, I think this is why our prayers are so weak. But you say, Craig, I don't know the word of God. I'm already 40 years old. It's not too late to start. No, no, no. It's not too late to become a student of the word. We're doing a campaign right now called 28 Days of Prayer. You know what we're doing next year? We're going to do 28 days of Bible reading. The Bible, word sufficiency. Why? All we're doing this for, folks, is that somehow something happens in 28 days where something goes off inside of you and launches as a catalyst to you to develop a prayer life. So you can look back 15 years from now and say, I don't remember one thing that was said during that prayer series, but it was the one time in my life, and it was the game changer in my life, where finally, for the first time, I began to spend daily time with God in prayer. That's what we desire. That's what we pray. It's what we strategize. That's why we pray and believe. In prayer, we perceive the will of God for a situation, and we defy the situation that we're currently in, and we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John Patton, he was a young Scottish pastor in the 19th century named John Patton. I want to show you his picture. He was leading a very successful church in Scotland. He was a very young man and um, had a lot of success to be so young. And uh, he, uh, he grew up increasingly emburdened about a group of islands in the South Pacific that he had heard about that was inhabited by people who had never heard the gospel. They'd never heard the gospel before. The problem was with these islands called the New Hebrides, um, were they, there's two things. Number one, they were filled with cannibals who had a history of eating any Westerner who came on shore. There had not been one Westerner who'd come into the, the island that was not eaten. These, these people were cannibals. Secondly, no Westerner knew their language. The language they spoke on this set of islands was completely foreign to anyone. Now, what exactly do you do to start a church in a place like that? <laughs> you start passing out pamphlets like hey join us for the Easter sunrise service this Sunday you know join us right over here you know right it's like come and bring a friend no someone in the service might eat your friend you know it's like hey, just come by yourself week one you know you, you don't want to certainly have your head eaten off so so you don't do that going into an island like that but Patton knew that God was not willing that any should perish and if you read his autobiography I got it in my office he resigned his church and he determined to go based off second Peter 3 9 it's not God's will that any should perish but all come to repentance he resigned his church. Many tried to discourage him from going. One of my favorite episodes from his life, Patton recounts this. You ready? This is a seminary professor. 
I was besieged with the strongest opposition from Christians on all sides. One of my seminary professors told me that I was leaving certainty for uncertainty. I was leaving the work in which God had made me greatly useful in building an amazing church only to throw my life away for the cannibals. One dear old Christian deacon said to me, Son, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. I replied, Mr. Dixon, which by the way is his name, the deacon, you are advanced in years now which is a nice way of saying you're old. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. Woo, come on, somebody. Your own body's about to be in the grave, he said, there to be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by people that are cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will come up out of the grave as well as yours and as beautiful as yours and the glorious likeness of our risen Redeemer. So it don't matter if worms eat my body or people eat my body. That's called defiance, folks. That's called I'm defiant and intent on people being reached with the gospel. He said, indeed, the opposition was so strong from nearly all that I was driven to seek God in prayer but again every time I went before God in prayer he said every doubt would vanish when I clearly saw that these poor men and women were created in God's image they were perishing without even the chance of knowing all of God's love and mercy to me he said I knew God didn't want them to perish Patton's lifelong ministry was both brutal and exhilarating let me give you the story his wife whom he loved dearly died bearing their first child on the island they got on the island they were there for about 16 months she died in childbirth and um you say, Craig, what happened? He was under constant siege day and night. He took the wife and he took the baby and he buried them. And for four nights, he had to sleep on the grave to keep the cannibals from coming and digging them up and eating their bodies. He, didn't, he wanted to give them honor. So he slept on their grave for four days. So they wouldn't eat his wife. They wouldn't eat his baby. He was under constant siege day and night. Finally, he saw a breakthrough ten years into it. People started coming to Christ. In fact, one of my favorite stories from his biography... One of the chiefs who came to, Christ, came to Christ, it took him 15 years, he asked him. He said, now that I've come to Christ, I've got to ask you a question. He said, when you first got here on our islands, he said, who was that army that guarded your hut each night? He said, we would come to kill you every night. We'd wait till dark. We would come to kill you every night. But every time we came to kill you, we couldn't because there was an army around your, your hut. There was a siege of army and an angel army. They didn't understand it was an angel army. And apparently the angels of God every day and night would surround his hut. Why? To preserve the witness of the gospel in a land that Jesus died for. That's defiance in prayer. When Patton arrived on the island in 1858, there was not a single Christian. When he died 35 years later on that same island, he said in his biography, I don't know a single islander who's not professed faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> 35 years. Where do you perceive a gap right now? Is it in your sin life? Is it your struggle with sin? Where do you perceive a gap? Is it in your family? Is it in your kids? Is it in your job? Where's your gap? Is it in a ministry situation? It's when you perceive the gap. And then you defy and say, God, I pray. Can I just tell you, the only place I perceive a gap between where our church is and what God wants the gospel situation to be in Woodstock, I see a really big gap. And I ain't going to stop until the gap gets closed. I see a monster gap. Can I just preach to you for a minute? Come on up, Casey. I believe he wants the gospel to be famous in Woodstock. Do you believe that? I believe God wants our city to be more famous than just being the place that entrepreneurs are flocking to in Atlanta over the next 10 years. I believe God wants the gospel to be famous in our city. I believe that. I believe he wants the influential students from all over the nation to come 
to Kennesaw State University. They come to study at our universities and they would see that Jesus is better than the lust of the flesh. I believe that he wants college students to understand the gospel provides better answers for life's question than their professor's skepticism and their professor's atheism. I believe that God is sending them here because he wants the gospel to reach their life. I love our city, folks. I love our city like anybody else. I think it's one of the top places to be. I think it's an amazing place to live and to raise a family, but I believe our city, I believe that in our city, every high school dropout, I believe that in our city, every single widow should have a healing encounter with the power of Jesus Christ. I believe that he wants there to be a a profound spirit of gospel unity right here in our city. Why? Where together we see a massive turning to the gospel in our city to see disciples being raised, to see churches being planted. I believe that in our city that racial diversity would come together. Why? To be a testimony to God's reconciling power. I believe he wants the gospel to be acceptable to every person in our city. He wants this city and the churches to saturate the broken and the hurting people of our city. I believe he wants Atlanta to experience a rebirth of love within families where fathers turn towards sons and sons turn towards fathers. I believe that husbands and wives would turn to each other again. And I believe by the Spirit of God that he wants us to plant a thousand churches and bless a thousand cities where the church is not strong all around the world. Why? Why do I believe it? Because God told me he wanted it. And I'm defiant until we see it happen. I'm at that place in life, church, I am. People wonder why I yell. They do. People are visitors to our church. They say, why Why in the world is that dude yell? I yell because I believe it. I yell because there's nations perishing without the gospel. And you come in every week and you listen to me and Chad yell at you. Because you believe it. You wouldn't be here. Thousand churches. Thousand different cities. So bring it on, King Darius. You can put us in the lion's den. My God's a God who shuts the mouths of lions. Do what you want to. That's the defiance, church. And I defy the situation. I defy it. When, and I claim the promises of God. Why? To ask Him to help us change that. To change cities that don't know Jesus. And by the way, I and this leadership team will defy anyone like Darius or his jealous satraps who try to keep us from obeying God. Because it's a whole lot easier to create culture than it is to protect culture. But I will defy fight to the end to protect the culture of what God's building in this church last point our prayers should be characterized by endurance our prayers should be characterized by endurance two quick observations from Daniel's life number one if you see your car Daniel was willing to be thrown into the lion's den before he'd stop praying he was willing to be thrown into the lion's den before he'd stop praying you know how much he endured can I ask you a question how valuable is prayer to you Daniel was willing to lose his life over it. How much do you prioritize prayer? My challenge, start a prayer time. Start a Bible reading plan daily. It's a game changer. If all you get from this series is a daily prayer time, then dear God, we've done our job. After that, I told you next year we're going to give a reading plan. We're going to give a daily tweet, a bookmark that's going to have every passage for us to read in our campaign, 40 Days in the Word, so we can spur that in your life. And the biggest game changer for some of you is just to be praying daily. You know, my son may not remember all that dad tells him, but I guarantee you when he's 40, 50 years old, some of his top memories in life are going to be when he saw his dad and his mom's faithfulness to pray. And I just felt the Lord say to me this week, some of your children, mom and dads, desperately need to know that you have a time with God and you don't need to keep it from them. You need to do it right in front of them so they can see where the source of their, their family comes from. 
They can see when God blesses their life, it's because daddy was on his knees. They can see why they're feeling and they're favored because mama knows how to pray. Your children desperately need to see that. They need to observe that and witness that. Number two, Daniel was willing to persist in prayer until God answered. You know how long it took the return from exile to happen? 70 years. You know what that means? If you study the history, Daniel prayed for 60 years before an answer was given. Who in here would pray 60 years without one indication God would answer? 60 years. Would you pray for something that long? Here's another interesting piece. Daniel at one point was praying about something. And while he was praying by the river, he had been praying for 21 days. This is a super cool verse. I mean, super cool verse. And a man clothed in bright linen comes, steps out of the bushes. And he said to him in Daniel chapter 10, look at this, verse 11. And he said to me, this man jumps out in front of him. He's, he's praying by the river, walking. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. I've been sent to you as an angel. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. I bet you stood up trembling. And he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day, it's day 20, but from the first day you started praying, to understand and humble yourself before your God. Your words have been heard by God. And I have come because of your words. God sent me because he heard your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, some demon, withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, he came and opened up a can of whoop trash on somebody. And he came to help me. He came to, he came to come along there with the kings of Persia. And, and notice what happens. This is amazing when you think about this passage. This just drips with awesomeness. And it drips with confusion, if, if I can be honest with you. So on the day Daniel started to pray, his words were heard. This guy was sent with an answer to prayer. He's coming along the way. A demon jumps up in front of him. He gets in an octagon. He wrestles with the demon for 20 days. And you know what happens in those 20 days? Daniel keeps on getting in his knees, and he keeps walking the river, and he keeps praying, and he keeps praying. And yet up in heaven, people say, what's going on in heaven? Dear God, if he opened up the heavens right now, oh, you'd be scared to death. You'd be laying on your face. We, there's so much more going on than what we understand. And he said these demons up there. But finally, could it? be that on day 20 God got so tired of hearing Daniel continuing to pray for the same thing he said hey one of my angels must have not delivered like I wanted him to deliver so let me go ahead and let me go and send the archangel Michael and Michael comes and he literally destroys this demon and so this one demon that was originally sent gets set free from the octagon and he shows up and he's out of breath he jumps up out of the out of the bushes he's like I'm sorry I'm late Daniel he said uh, I've been I've been here been, been trying to get to you dude 20 days but uh, some demon held me up but you know what Daniel wouldn't do he wouldn't stop praying he just kept praying I wonder if he would have heard the answer to prayer if he'd have stopped on day 19 I wonder if day 20's prayer is what sent Michael to help the angel I wonder I often wonder Michael's the Jack Bauer of angels you pray for 20 days no answer keep praying you paid 20 you paid 60 years no answer keep praying I struggle with this church can I be honest I close I struggle how do you know when to persist and how do you know when to stop and rest in the sovereignty how do you know because scripture presents both I would be inaccurate and I would be unfaithful to the word to tell you just one side because in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God prayed, Paul prayed three times for God to take a thorn. And God said, stop praying for it. I'm not taking it from you. 
but my grace is sufficient for you. Let me tell you, Jesus once told his disciples, he said, you shouldn't pray like the pagans who think God will hear them because they talk a lot. Our heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask him. So some things that we pray for, even good things that we think are the will of God, we're not going to get no matter how long we pray. I understand that in scripture. But the Bible tells us to knock and keep on knocking. And when Jesus said to ask and it shall be given and knock and and the door shall be opened to you, you don't knock one time on anybody's door. No, they think a bird flew into their door. You've never walked up to a door and went, you do this. And Jesus says, keep on knocking and keep on knocking. Why? Because it was like the persistent widow who we talked about who, who continued to knock. It was like Jacob who wrestled with God. It was like Daniel who pressed through for 21 days. It was the early church praying all night long for Peter's release, Acts 12. The Bible presents both sides. So honestly, listen to me. I can't tell you which is which, but there is a tension. And so I tell you, the Holy Spirit has to guide you. And the good news is, I'm not your Holy Spirit. I'm only your pastor. And he'll tell you. He'll tell you whether to rest or to keep going. And when it's something you're sure of from God's word, and you've interpreted it correctly, you don't stop ever. You press through. So that thing God's put in your heart, mama, the place God knows you want want to work, has God told you to stop praying for it? Then don't. That sibling who continually backslides again and again, has God told you to stop praying for him? Then don't. Took my mom seven years of pray for my sister before she finally came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Daniel got thrown into a lion den. King Darius never wanted it to happen. He was just gullible and weak-willed. So he stayed up all night worrying about God and then worrying about Daniel. So catch this. King Darius had been up all night worrying. Daniel's enemies had been up all night partying. And Daniel's the only one who got a good night's sleep right in the middle of the lines. And Darius comes back the next morning. He rushes down to check and see if somehow Daniel made it. Are you alive, Daniel? And Daniel's in there and his lazy boy. He's got a cup of coffee in his hand. Got the newspaper reading between the lines. I'm a professional. And he's just got his legs kicked back. God kept Daniel safe through his prayer. And the plot of the wicked men was overturned. And God was glorified. Craig, what are you saying? The message of this story points to something beyond Daniel. The point of this story is not you pray and God will deliver you from all the lines because there's a lot of saints who've gotten eaten by the lines. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that this pushes to something beyond Daniel. Daniel was innocent yet sentenced to death. We know someone who was even more innocent than Daniel, Jesus, but was sentenced to death. Psalm 22 said the lion circled him. That was Jesus desiring to eat up his flesh. That's what the Bible said. Daniel trusted God in pretty impressive ways, but there was one who trusted God more than Daniel. His name was Jesus. Daniel came out of the lion's den without a scratch. Jesus came out of the lion's den filled with wounds that are strength for your soul and for my soul. What it tells me is whatever situation I'm in, I can trust God. God loves me. He died for me. His presence is with me and he'll never leave me nor forsake me. So therefore I can pray for 60 years because I know God cares and He hears. 
The name Daniel means God is my judge. The gospel is that God was judged for you. So now I have no judgment to fear. There's no judgment coming to you. Who can be against me? He's a father. Listen, you can now bring your kids before him because he died for your kids and say, for your name's sake. You didn't die for your kids. So he cares more about your kids than you. You can go before the Lord and say, it's my life, but my life is not my own. It's yours, God. And you have more invested in me than I have invested in me. So for your name's sake, do what you said you would do in me. That means you can come before. I can pray for this church and I don't pray like I've put blood, sweat, and tears into this. No, Jesus died for you. I don't think Chad and I have died to you this point. So when we come to God in prayer, we don't come on the basis of what we've done or how we've toiled or how we soiled. We come on the basis of the fact that God, it's your namesake. It's about your kingdom. It's about your gospel. It's about your glory. So God, act. Don't delay. Act quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Discipline. Defiance. Endurance. All in prayer. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.